Father, that's such, such a great song. It expresses such a biblical idea that we won't look back, and we certainly won't turn back. We'll follow after you. Thank you, Lord, for these musicians, instrumentalists that have served us all day in three worship services. Bless them. Thank you for them. Thank you for all your gifts, all the various things you are capable of that you've expressed in us. All the gifts, all the talent, all the art, everything we could possibly do, Lord, cannot really truly reflect the magnificence of who you are. But help us to see it, Jesus, in you this evening. Help us to hear your message, to heed it, to love you for it, to trust you with our very lives. I pray in Jesus' name, giving you thanks. Amen. All righty, you'll need your Bibles. Open them in the Gospel of Luke, please. Luke chapter 13. And while you're looking there, and what I want you to do, we're going to move through the Gospel of Luke and eventually land in Luke chapter 13. We've been walking beside Jesus through the Gospel of Luke for quite a long time. And now we've come to His favorite topic. Jesus taught about a lot of different things. He taught about really everything that was necessary for us to know. He didn't cover every subject, but He covered every necessary subject so that we could have a life that was pleasing to God, that was peaceful and purposeful. Did you ever ask yourself what his very favorite thing was of all the things he talked about? If you know, don't shout it out because I want everybody to think about it, kind of scan your Bible knowledge, your Bible reading. What was Jesus' favorite topic? Give it a second. One guy at 9 o'clock did not cooperate. He shouted straight out, okay? <laughs> Ruined it for all of us. No, I'm just kidding. He was right. You know where Jesus is headed? He's headed to the cross. But of all the things he taught, what did he speak about most often? At the risk of making the introverts uncomfortable, if you have an idea that you think is worth hearing, would you tell your neighbor what you think Jesus talked about the most? Just turn to a friendly-looking person and share your theory. This is why you're my favorite service. You play ball. Good job. Were there a variety of answers? How many of you had, of those you talked to, you heard at least two different things? See, we're not quite sure, and there's a good reason for that. Jesus' favorite topic, believe it or not, was the kingdom of God. That's what He spoke of the most often, and we may not even know what that means. But I want, you to sh I want to show you how often this comes up in Luke's gospel. Look with me, please, first. To Luke chapter 1. And all we're going to do is come to where we are. I'm just going to hit some high points to come to where we have stopped in Luke's gospel. Look in Luke chapter 1 in verse 30. You'll notice this is the very beginning of the gospel. This is actually before Jesus was born. An angel is speaking to the young, frightened woman who will be his mother to Mary. And in Luke 1 verse 30, it says, the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. For you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God, here comes the kingdom language, 
the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his, what's it say? Of his kingdom, there will be no end. Interesting. Look a few chapters ahead in Luke chapter 4. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus goes to his hometown in Nazareth. He preaches in the synagogue. He's given the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, written 700 years before Jesus was born, and tells them, this promise that Isaiah made is being fulfilled right in front of you. I'm the one. And then he goes out after the synagogue meeting and proves it. He heals all kinds of disease. He casts out every demon-possessed person. He casts the demons out of them. And in Luke chapter 4, verse 42, we read this. When it was day, the very next morning, he departed and went into a desolate place, and the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. Well, of course. Someone that powerful would preach, teach, and heal the way Jesus did. But look, but he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose, and he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Now, what did Jesus say he was sent to do? To preach what? The kingdom of God. We don't see it for some reason. Not very easily. Look in chapter 8, verse 1. It says, soon afterward he went on through cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him. Jesus is proclaiming, in other words, he's verbally communicating the good news. He's also bringing it. And I think that's a reference to not only what he's saying, but what he's doing. And it's all about the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve apostles are with him. But not only they, also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. In other words, Jesus is accompanied not only by his apostles, but by ordinary women, some of whom he has done tremendous miracles for, and together they are traveling around, and Jesus is proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. Two more, two more references. Look in Luke chapter 10, verse 9 before we arrive in Luke 13. Luke chapter 10, Jesus is sending out the twelve now. He's no longer going with them. They're going alone, but to deliver, if you notice, the exact same message. Luke 10 verse 9, He says to the apostles, heal the sick. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. And that is Jesus preaching. In the first chapter of Mark's gospel, Mark gives us right at the beginning a summary of the preaching of Jesus, and he says, this is what Jesus was saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, why haven't we noticed that? Why did I go to church practically, well, they carried me into church for a while before I walked into church. I was that little. Why didn't I ever see that? Because I live in a representative democracy. 
my mind, my culture isn't tuned to kingship. And we're glad we don't have kings in America, right? We don't particularly like it when people start acting like kings and they alone are in charge. We want our voice and our vote to be heard, and that's okay in this world. But God is king. He has enemies, he has rivals, but truly he is unrivaled. There's no one who can stand against him. If, if he feels like indulging the opposition, he can, but nobody can compare to him. He's without equal. Jesus was preaching about the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? Well, if you just think about it, a kingdom, you need three things for there to be a kingdom. You need a king, that's God, it's his kingdom. You need a place where the king will rule. You need territory, in other words. And you also need citizens. And once you see it, and you see it especially in the Gospels, the epistles don't talk about it nearly as often as Jesus does. But once you see it in the Bible, it pops out everywhere. I think, honestly, as Westerners, we read the Gospel, and then our brains kind of skip this kingdom of God because we don't know what to do with it. But if you've trusted Jesus tonight, I have good news for you. According to Paul himself, and he was explaining this to former pagans in the ancient city of Colossae, you're already in the kingdom. Look with me in Colossians chapter 1. You're still holding Luke 13, right? Why do pastors make you look in a place and then take you to 12 other places? How annoying. Look with me in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. He says to these Colossians, these former pagans, these idol worshipers, here's what happened to them when they trusted Jesus as Savior. If your kids are saved, this is what's already happened to them. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to, what's it say? The kingdom of His beloved Son. People apart from Christ are living in a territory, in a domain that is dark, but when we trust Jesus, we are transferred to the kingdom of His beloved Son, Paul says, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, and he goes on from there explaining the deity of Jesus. Jesus is literally God. He is God made flesh. He is God visible. So when he says the kingdom of God is at hand, the kingdom of God has come near to you, what he's talking about is the king's now on earth. The king who is eternal, who made all things. Colossians is going to on to explain all of that. He's no longer utterly transcendent where you cannot see him and begin to imagine how he is. He's standing right in front of you. The kingdom of God has come very close because the king is here and the kingdom life is starting to break forth everywhere Jesus preaches, everywhere Jesus acts, everywhere Jesus is believed. And all of that is happening in Luke 13 where we pick up our story. Look there with me. Ironically, I lost my place after telling you to hold yours. Luke chapter 13 the last verse in last week's passage, Jesus has healed a woman who was crippled for 18 years. He's announced not only her healing, but her forgiveness, her welcome into the family of God on the Sabbath day in spite of their criticism. 
And verse 17 says, as he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame and all the people rejoiced at the glorious things that were done by him. And that's God language. What Jesus does is glorious. It's not ordinary. It has the signature and the power of God in it. And because of what they're seeing, now he's going to explain it to them and explain to them the kingdom. And we're just going to listen and see what we can learn from Jesus about God's kingdom. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? Jesus is a good teacher. He's going to use what teachers call an object lesson. He's going to take ordinary things from everyday life, and he's going to tell them this is what the kingdom of God is like. It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed or planted throughout in his garden. It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven, or some of us would say yeast. It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three quarters of flour until it was all leavened little biblical explanation, a measure, three measures would be roughly 48 pounds of flour. You ever bought 48 pounds of flour? Not unless you need to feed over 100 people, right? Who needs that much? Now, just look at Jesus' word pictures. Do they make sense to you? He says, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed that a man throws out in his garden, and eventually a plant, a tree grows up there that grows so big that birds can nest in it. Here's another picture, he says. It's like a woman who has this massive amount of flour, and she takes a little pinch of yeast, and she just mixes it in a little bit, and eventually all 48, 50 pounds of flour all rise. That'd be quite a sandwich, wouldn't it? You could make with that bread. What's the point? Number one Bible reading tip around here is what? Slow down. Jesus isn't a bad teacher. His word pictures are on point. It just might be that we don't understand them because of time and culture and distance. For instance, anybody have any idea what a mustard seed looks like? I didn't. I had to look in the spice rack. A mustard seed is tiny. It's one of the smallest seeds you could find. It's like the smallest freckle on your kid's arm. It's teensy. And Jesus says a man takes a tiny single one of those seeds, throws it in the garden, and eventually, he doesn't even realize it, but it took root and eventually it grows. And the mustard plants of the Palestine, the world of that day, the small ones grew to 10 feet, the big ones grew to 25 feet. So from a speck is a tree that would tower over our auditorium. Then he says, I'll give you another word picture if you didn't get that one. It's like a woman who takes a little bit of yeast, mixes it in with 50 pounds of flour, and eventually all of that flour rises. What's the point? I think what Jesus is telling us is simply this. This is what the kingdom of God is like. It has a small beginning, but that small beginning eventually will lead to total success. It begins very, very small, but eventually it's going to cover the whole world and it's going to win the whole world. He will rule eventually. At a time of his own choosing, he will rule over everything. 
Think about the Jesus movement. How many are on His side as He says this? What do you think? How many have publicly identified with Him? Twelve apostles, then there's another group of the seventy. Certainly all these people receiving this preaching and hearing these things and receiving the healing, some of them have believed, but in comparison to the opposition, in comparison to the Romans, it's tiny. It's insignificant. But Jesus says, eventually, the kingdom is going to spread in a way that is going to be overwhelming, and there is going to be total success. And that's one of the exciting things about being a Christian and realizing that God all over the world is moving people from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of His beloved Son. And we see these little outposts, these little outbreaks of the kingdom and of kingdom life all over the world. If we took the time, we could produce quite a documentary just in our church, which isn't particularly large. There's probably not everybody comes every weekend, but there's probably 900 people that call Cross Point home. But if we went through and heard their stories of the people who genuinely were saved by Christ, every one of us would have a before and after story. We could talk about the domain of darkness. We could talk about what it's like to live in the kingdom of His beloved Son, and it's happening worldwide. A few weeks ago, and I'll try to be as careful as he was, we had a young missionary who was briefly part of our church, and he went to one of the most difficult, conflicted places on earth. I hope you were here when he told those stories. He didn't tell you everything because he's just that careful and he's just that humble. But in his little hot spot of the world, every Sunday the government provides armed police officers that ring the building. Every time those Christians by the hundreds gather in the church to worship the Lord, they walk past men with weapons that are there not to intimidate them but to protect them. On hot days, politically, religiously, they don't send police, they send soldiers and armored personnel carriers. And he told me, on the really big days, they put snow snipers to overlook the church. The church has an 11-foot wall around it, and they're reminded, this is not a day for the kids to fool around and try to climb the wall. The sniper will shoot them not knowing who they are. Now, why am I telling you that? Why would people risk that kind of persecution Go to worship knowing that it may actually cost them their lives or they may be witnesses to a terrible atrocity. Why would they do that? Because the kingdom is breaking forth even there. He loves us. He's changing lives all over the world, and this little beginning will eventually read, lead to a great success. He's going to go on and explain it in verse 22. He went on his own, he went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? I don't know who that guy was. Luke doesn't name him, so it doesn't particularly matter. But I like to think that he was probably some kind of seminary student or something. Because he's got this theoretical question, Right? Jesus is continuing through towns and villages. He's teaching on His way to Jerusalem. And a man says, how many of us are going to be saved anyway? 
Is it going to be just a small group of people? Because doubtless he's watched the opposition. He's watched the trouble that Jesus creates everywhere he goes. He's watching the reaction. And Jesus, as all good teachers do, sometimes he changes the question, not to answer the question he was asked, but to provide a better question and a better answer. He said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. He will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And that's quite a word picture. Have you ever seen someone so overcome by grief that they ground their teeth? I have just a couple of times, and I don't want to ever see it again. It pains me to remember how much pain someone was in but they were clashing their teeth and grinding them together in disbelief, in shock, in fear, in sadness of what the news they had just received. Jesus is saying, that's going to be some of you. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. In other words, Jesus is saying, all your prophets and all your heroes, they're going to enjoy God's kingdom. And some of you who are listening to me here today, you're going to be on the outside. And that little narrow door that you should have walked through, someday the king's going to close it in your face, and no matter what you say and how you plead, you will no longer go in. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. Look, we're in this verse, we Americans. People will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. In other words, the kingdom and the feast that God is going to offer is going to be enjoyed by people from all over the world. And behold, some are, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. I think this is a warning to His own disciples, and particularly the apostles, not to think less of people who come to faith in Christ after they do. God's going to even it out, and things are going to be upside down, and it doesn't matter when you trust Jesus and where you're from, what matters is that you enter through that narrow door. Did you see the verb, though? Did you see what Jesus said in the answer in verse 24? The man said, will the saved be few? And Jesus said, you need to do something. You need to strive, my Bible says. Another translation, strain every nerve. Another says, make every effort to enter through the narrow door. If you've read other parts of the Bible, who or what is the narrow door? How do we enter the kingdom of God? Through Christ. 
Jesus is the door. He is the way. He is the life. He is the one. Your faith should be as narrow as Jesus. No wider. Just as wide as He is, just as narrow as He is, your faith should have the shape of Jesus Himself. What is this teaching about? Jesus is still talking about the kingdom. He's answering a question of how many people will be saved, and I think here is Jesus' answer. Number two, it will be enjoyed by fewer people than we think. My pastor, my predecessor here, the senior pastor of the church, used to say there's going to be two surprises in heaven. Who's there and who isn't? It's true. It's kind of clever, it's kind of funny, but it's true. We'll probably look around in heaven when we're there saying, wow, that guy made it. Last I talked to him, he was mean as a snake. What happened there? Well, he was last, but then Jesus came, or maybe in the last hours of his life, snatched him out of hell. Now he's first. Others who were well known for their piety, for their righteousness, for their good deeds, they didn't make it. What was happening there? They were actually on that broad way, drawing all the attention to themselves, remaining in charge of their own lives. See, Jesus is such a great teacher. The man said, will the saved be few? And Jesus says, let me tell you a better question. Will the saved be you? If you take anything else away from this sermon, for yourself, for your family, and your loved ones, make it that. Make every effort to be sure that you yourself are saved. Notice what I said. I didn't say to save yourself. No, strive to enter through the narrow door, whatever that takes for you. If you're still considering Christ, make sure that you know enough about Him to love Him and trust Him and do what He said. Repent. In other words, turn around and trust Him because the kingdom of God really is here. He's near. He's right in front of you. But if you don't enter through that narrow door in life, there will come a time, whether through the Lord's return or your own death, where the king shuts the door and your opportunity is over. It's a terrifying little picture he paints, really. He says, Lord, we were with you. We ate and drank right in front of you. We heard you teach in our streets. In other words, we we saw you, we hung out, and the king will say twice, don't know where you're from, get away from me. The kingdom of God is the kind of kingdom that will be enjoyed by fewer people than we think, but those who enjoy it are going to feast. It's a banquet. It's not a transaction where you're dead and then you have life. It's not God flipping a switch. It's God giving you and inviting you into life. What Jesus is teaching us here is that the influence and the offer of the kingdom is as wide as the world itself. The trouble's not in the offer and the influence. It's all over the world. Little tiny villages and big bustling cities in the Middle East, like our missionary told us of. The trouble is that the acceptance and the enjoyment of the kingdom is narrow. It's a much smaller group. Make sure that you enter through the narrow door. The last teaching of Jesus is the most intense in this chapter. He's still talking about the kingdom. They've been hearing his his teaching, and it says, at that very hour some Pharisees came and said to him, get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. That's kind of funny. 
What has your experience been of the Pharisees so far in Jesus' life? Are they for Him or against Him? They're against Him. So why do they care if Herod wants to kill Him? Kind of a weird turn, don't you think? What's happening here? Well, if you look back up in the 17th verse, it says that Jesus had done such remarkable things that His opponents were ashamed, and everybody was glorifying God. Everybody was praising God for what Jesus had done. So, I think they changed tactics. They say, if we can't get the people to not listen to Him, everywhere He, do- he goes, He does these amazing things. Let's see if we can get Him to run for it. Herod, this murderous, awful man of one of the Herods, it's said in the history books, that it would be better to be a pig in his house than his own son. Why? Because he was that treacherous. He was that murderous. Now, Jesus is told one of the Herods, Herod is after you. He wants to kill you. You want to see strength and courage? Look at verse 32. He said to them, go tell that fox. Now, that needs a little explanation. Because fox in the West is a clever animal, right? We say that someone is very sharp, maybe good in business, ah, he's crazy like a fox, right? It's not the way they used it in Jesus' day. A fox in Jesus' day is a poser, a person who thinks they're important, who thinks they're prominent, but is actually second-rate, a pretender. Literature around the time of Jesus has little sayings like this. Someone is rebuked with this. He's trying to learn something, and this is what they say to him. Why are you asking foxes when there's lions in the room? In other words, if you have real experts to learn from, why are you talking to pretenders? A fox also was another, had another negative connotation in Jesus' day. It's a cunning little animal, but it's not particularly of importance. It's not a lion, certainly, but it is very destructive. So Jesus is saying, you go tell that poser, that man of no particular importance who has done so much damage, tell him this, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Did you catch Jesus' answer? Tell that guy who's just fronting, tell that guy who's just posing, I'm casting out demons and performing cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Now, what's that about? That's another Jewish expression. Jesus is just saying, I have work to do. I'm not done. But notice how wise He is, how He sets up what's going to happen in Jerusalem. Jesus is headed toward Jerusalem with determination. Nothing is stopping Him from heading that way, and He's going to bring the kingdom of God near everywhere He goes. What's going to happen to Jesus in Jerusalem? He's going to be betrayed. He's going to endure the mockery of a trial. He's going to be killed, and He's going to be buried. Jesus isn't literally saying, I have three days left. He's saying, I have work to do, and I won't stop until it's done. I'm on my way to Jerusalem because that's where Jerusalem kills its prophets. Look, verse 34, 
O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Jesus picks up a little, another word image. He's a great teacher. We don't see this because we live in suburban Orange County. You have to, well, you have to go to the grocery store practically to see a chicken. And it doesn't look much like a chicken at that point. Chickens literally gather up their little chicks, sweep them under their wings, keep them warm and safe until they're strong enough to go out and peck on their own. Jesus is saying to Jerusalem, you kill the prophets, everyone that God sends to you, you kill. And what I wanted to do instead, I wanted to gather you under wings, and you were not willing. He picks up not only a cute little picture from an Israeli barnyard, he also picks up imagery from the Psalms, for God gathers people under His wings and keeps them safe. That's what Jesus wanted to do for every person He's preaching to. But He says to Jerusalem, behold, your house is forsaken. In other words, you don't know it yet, but the judgment has already come. Some of you have gone with us to Israel. If you ever go or just Google it, you can see it easily. There are boulders twice the size of that piano embedded in the street outside the old wall from Jerusalem because that's where they landed when the Romans destroyed the temple. Jesus said that the destruction would come and a stone wouldn't be left on a stone, and he was right. And the archaeologists have left it there as witness that on A.D. 70, some 70 years after the birth of Jesus, the city was completely destroyed. Jesus knows that game is already up. It's already over. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's the very psalm they're going to sing to him on Palm Sunday when he's headed into the city, and they'll say it again when he finally returns. But here's the final teaching regarding the kingdom of God, and it is this, the difference, the key to the kingdom is this, what makes all the difference when it comes to the kingdom is your personal response to Jesus. Jesus has brought the kingdom near because He is the Son and the King on earth. What's going to make the difference? He's the narrow door. He's creating a reaction in everyone who listens to Him. Some are going to be persistent and die in their sins. Others are like His disciples, frightened as they were, imperfect as they were, double-minded as Peter was, up and down emotionally as Thomas was, who says in one moment, in a moment of bravery, let's go to Jerusalem, we'll die too, we'll die with Him. Then the resurrection comes, and Thomas says, I don't believe it from that motley crew. Jesus made a movement that he says is going to cover the whole world, and here we are 2,000 years later, all the way over on another continent, in our church, in three services, thanking the Lord and having communion in His name. What makes the difference? How you respond to Jesus. And please remember this, the real tragedy of neglecting and rejecting the will of God is that God gets you what you want. When you reject the will of God, 
you persist in sin, you continually turn your back on Jesus, God eventually chooses to say in His sovereignty, fine, your will be done instead. And that's the worst thing that God could ever say to you, that God will not do His will, He'll allow yours to be done instead. See, the key to all this, the key to enjoying the kingdom is welcoming and loving and serving the King. That's why we're called Christians. That's why we're His disciples. See, the greatest mistake that Christians make is they're transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved Son where they have a new king, a new life, a new way of living here, and a new home someday that Jesus Himself said He would go ahead to prepare for us. And having been given the kingdom, we insist on building our own stupid little empires. See, one of the most famous verses in the Bible now makes a little more sense, I hope. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God. The king's on earth. Kingdom life is already here. But you haven't been saved to build your empire. You've been saved to seek his kingdom. Seek first the kingdom of God. And all these things, what things? Money, food, clothing, all the things that drive you crazy, make your blood pressure go up ruin your life, take away your sleep. If you seek first the kingdom of God, Jesus says all those things that you're so worried about, all those things will be added to you. Don't waste your life building your empire. No matter how big it is, it'll be snatched away from you. We see that in movies and read it in old books. We read of people who were wealthy and famous a hundred years ago. We rarely know their names. We read only that they were important. The few we know we have pity on because they're now dead. And what did it all amount to? To nothing if they aren't moved from this world, from the kingdom of this earth, into the home and the kingdom of God. Don't waste your life. Welcome and enjoy the king. And if you're not absolutely certain that Jesus is your Savior, please make sure tonight... If you have doubts about your kids, your loved ones, don't be harsh. Don't be judgmental. Be patient and be prayerful. Reason with them. Pray for them and make sure that they walk through that narrow door to enjoy the feast of the kingdom of God by loving and trusting its king. Let's pray. you're not quite sure that you know Jesus, could I invite you, even with my own head bowed, to call out to Him and ask Him to save you? If you're not totally sure, could you just talk to Him and say, Jesus, I'm not sure, but I want to be sure. Please save me. I'm sorry. I'm turning around. I'm repenting. Please save me. Be my Savior and my boss. If you do that tonight, please take the card in your bulletin, fill it out quickly and let us know that you've taken a stand and a step for Christ. And especially on a Sunday afternoon service, maybe everybody's already following Jesus. But maybe you've been more about your empire than His kingdom. Could you talk to Him about it and ask Him to forgive you and reorient you?
Lord Jesus, we're gathered here as your disciples, and perhaps tonight you're making new ones. Perhaps tonight you're saving a few. I don't know. You do. There's a single person here who doesn't know you. I pray that tonight they would, would be the night they choose to love and trust you, receive that eternal life. Help me, help me, my family, my role, my part in this church, Lord. Be a kingdom seeker. Do that same beautiful thing for every one of my brothers and sisters and friends here. May we seek your kingdom. May we seek you first. May we put you at the very top of our list of our love and allegiance. And thank you, Lord, that when these battles, these struggles and disappointments are over, we will someday recognize it was entirely worth it because you are perfectly good. In Christ's name, amen. God bless you, folks. Good night.